Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, as we pray each week, we ask you to join us here this morning, and we trust that you are a promise keeper and are here among us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You be seated. It used to be that nobody would sit until we would say, please be seated. Now you all just think you're in charge of yourselves. Let me let you in on a little secret. Preachers may have a favorite verse. It's possible. But it's probably not the one that they're telling you it is. Right? If you listen enough to one person preaching and you're paying attention, you'll start to realize that whenever they think it'll help their sermon, whenever they think it'll help their point, make it a little more powerful, a preacher will say things like, these are some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Or, this verse is the most comforting verse in all of Scripture. Or, this is a verse I find myself returning to again and again. If you listen to a single preacher long enough, eventually they'll probably claim that most of the Bible is their favorite verse. Preachers are not to be trusted. (laughs) Today, we did not read one of my favorite verses of Scripture. In fact, I'd bet that the little section we read today from Mark doesn't come up on many preachers' top ten lists. I'd wager, actually, that almost no one returns to this verse day after day for comfort and peace because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of peace and comfort to be found here. Truly, I tell you, says Jesus, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness. I bet your ears pricked a little bit when we read that. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin. I've preached on this passage once before in my life, and when I looked back through my notes to see what I might have said about this, I found that I had entitled that sermon, wait, there's an unforgivable sin? Because, you see, forgiveness is kind of a big deal to me. You might say it's the only deal. I bet some of you, the the cynical ones out there, you know who you are. I bet some of you, when you heard that in this morning's reading, thought to yourself, aha, I wonder how the young man is going to talk his way out of this. Because at first glance, there just doesn't seem to be any way around it. There is some kind of sin that is unforgivable, that is eternal. Now, J.D. and I stand up here week after week and try to proclaim the good news to you that Jesus Christ came to live the righteous life you have failed to live. He came to to die the sinner's death that you deserved and 
that on account of him, all your sins are forgiven. This is the good news that we proclaim. And we've promised you that we didn't make up this news, that we find it as the unequivocal message of the Bible, that there is no sin that you can commit that will put you out of reach of the forgiveness of God. I have a friend who puts it like this. He says, though our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches farther. Or for those football fans among you, we can never out-sin the coverage of God's forgiveness. Good news, right? Comforting, right? But this morning, we seem to have happened upon a little passage in the Bible that finds the chink in the forgiveness armor, this unforgivable sin, sin that is eternal. So what are we to make of this? How are we to understand it? What I want to do this morning is sort of another preacher's cheat, which is to use another passage of Scripture to interpret this one. And I'm convinced that we're When we read this story, this parable that Jesus tells, we will more easily see the key to understanding this hard teaching about an unforgivable sin. So, in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a story that you've probably heard once or twice in your life, the story of a wedding feast. A king throws a big party on the occasion of the wedding of his son, and he sends out wedding invitations to all the fancy people in the town, the best and the brightest. But when he sends his servants out to pick up the people that he's invited to the wedding, none of them actually want to come. He tells them how wonderful the party will be, but they make fun of it. Some of them even mistreat and kill the messengers. Talk about not wanting to go to a party. But the king decides that he wants a full house for the wedding of his son, and so he sends his servants into the streets. And he just says, bring everyone you can find, regardless of who they are. And this is what the gospel is all about, right? Jesus didn't come for the good, fancy people who sleep well at night, who make a lot of money and don't feel guilty about it, who have success oozing out of their pores, Jesus didn't come for them. He came for the rest of us, the street people who live our lives in perpetual fear, who don't know how things are going to turn out, who wonder if we'd recognize success if it came up and slapped us across the face. The gospel, the good news, is good news for us, the people who aren't ordinarily invited to the good parties. Jesus is saying that we're the ones who end up inside the wedding feast. Amen. But tragically, Jesus doesn't stop the story there. He continues. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot. And throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Yikes. This is a hard teaching, unforgivable sin level hard. Now, I remember, and this is true confessions time, a teaching that I did on this scripture years ago before I knew anything and when I knew even less than I know now. This was a teaching that I was really proud of at the time. I thought it was incredibly profound. I said that this parable of the wedding feast illustrated what the Christian life is really all about. You see, the gospel is for those people who aren't good enough to be invited to the party. The king's servants go out into the street and invite all the people in just the way they are. And that's what Jesus does for us. He meets us where we are and invites us into the party whether or not We deserve it. But, I said, once you get inside the party, you've got to change your clothes. The king probably has a closet full of wedding robes just waiting to be put on. When you get inside that party, when you become a Christian, you can't just stay the person you were before. You have to change into a wedding robe Become a person worthy of the party to which you are now invited. You see what I did there? I turned having a wedding robe into a human accomplishment, something that you can achieve. The king invites the dirty, downtrodden sinners into his house But when he comes into the room and actually sees them like that, he's shocked. He says, wait a minute. Why are you wearing your old clothes? Throw that guy out. Weeping and gnashing of teeth for you. So putting on a wedding robe has become something that the guest of the king has to do to stay inside the party. This was my teaching. What's important isn't getting in. That's easy. What's important is staying in. That's hard. So listen, it's all grace until you get in. It's all grace until you become a Christian. Then you'd better shape up. Or it's the outer darkness for you. If you, for, if you commit some unforgivable sin, you'll find yourself where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But this teaching, despite how it appeals to our common sense, is completely wrong and totally awful. And if we can understand this story of the wedding feast correctly, I think it'll give us the key to understanding what Jesus can possibly be talking about when he's talking about an unforgivable sin. Because see, when Jesus' listeners heard this story, when they heard Jesus talking about a wedding robe, this idea would have brought up instant images for them. You see, when we hear the word robe, we think of a bathrobe. But Back in the day, robes were real status symbols. When Joseph's father wants to give him a really good present, right? 
he gives him a robe of many colors. One of the most important pieces of clothing for the priest to wear was his robe. All these thousands of years later, I'm still wearing one right now. When the prophet Samuel's parents make the annual sacrifice, they make Samuel a special robe to wear for the occasion. As you can see, robes carry a lot more meaning in the Bible than they do today. Today, robes go with slippers and a pipe. Then, robes went with sacrifice and blood. Samuel wears a robe when an animal is slaughtered, sacrificing it to God. Priests wore robes when they made the sacrifices on behalf of the people. Even Joseph's robe of many colors ended up drenched in blood when his brothers pretended that he had been murdered. This imagery of robes and blood is stated most clearly in Revelation chapter 19. St. John has this vision and he says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed, and this is the important part, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This passage is describing the coming of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Word of God. His armies are dressed in fine linen, white and clean, but he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And of course, as we know, that blood is his own, shed for us. So this association of robes and blood and sacrifice would have been well known to those who were listening to Jesus tell this story. They would have been able to take this connection one step further in the same way that we can. The wedding robe in this parable of the feast is the blood of Christ. It's very easy to get sort of caught up in the, narr- the narrative of a parable and wonder about the person who's not wearing the wedding robe, right? Like, how was he supposed to get one? And he was just pulled in off the street into this party. Of course, he's still wearing these ratty old clothes. Maybe he's got a wedding robe at home, but he didn't have time to go get it. Maybe the king didn't have any in his size. What's going on here? But this is not the point of the parable. We can't read parables like this. They're not meant to be fully formed stories with character arcs and detailed explanations. Parables are simple stories told to illustrate a simple point. What's important is the point, not the details of the story. And the point of this 
parable. The wedding feast couldn't be simpler. To be at this party, you need to be wearing a wedding robe. Or to put it in translated terms, to be in the kingdom of heaven, you must be covered by the blood of Christ. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul says that all of you who were reborn into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You, Christians, are now clothed with Christ himself. You are wearing him. He is your wedding robe. It is the blood of Christ that robe that affords us entrance into the wedding feast of the kingdom of heaven. And the unforgivable sin, the one thing that can get you kicked out of the party, is not being covered by the blood of Christ. But remember the good news. You are covered by the blood of Christ. You have clothed yourself in Christ. Jesus did come to live the righteous life that you failed to live. And he did come to die the sinner's death that you deserved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, St. Paul makes this incredibly and profoundly crystal clear. Therefore, he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Behold, the old is gone. The new is here. The you that was wearing your dirty, raggedy old clothes, the you that might have gotten kicked out of the party, the you that desperately needed forgiveness, that was committing unforgivable sins left and right, that you doesn't exist anymore. Listen to this simple truth. Outside of Christ, every sin is unforgivable. But in Christ, all sins are already forgiven. All of our unforgivable sins were laid on the shoulders of our Savior Jesus Christ, and he took them to the grave. And when he rose three days later, he left them there, dead, gone, forgotten, forever. All your unforgivable sins have been taken away, taken to the cross, and put to rest. You are not now merely forgiven. You are a new creation perfect in the eyes of God. Amen.